elected, a woman sheet metal worker, a woman iron worker, a woman carpenter, a woman firefighter, a woman police officer. I think when we're able to really show the vastness of the labor movement and moving them into political office, there surely is going to be a lot greater appreciation, I think, for the leadership that's built in unions. I think President Biden asked for $765 billion of uh, taxpayer dollars this year for, for defense. And I'm just sitting here thinking, for what? Uh, you know, you learn as you go. <laughs> we are learning and, and companies, uh, companies know a rise now. You know, they, I, I, I often see uh, how many searches they did in LinkedIn and all these <laughs> places, you know, when, when we send them a letter, uh, they immediately respond. Everybody always asks for more money and improve the benefits, but it's the work rules that I really want to hear about because obviously I'm not on the shop floor. And I love uh, when people write in there and say, you know, this is this giving me the reason why they submitted that particular survey. It's various things that a lot of people deal with, more so this year because we're not, we're a little bit normal, but we're not totally but this year brings about people are getting back a little bit with their families, not being stretched out. But of course, it might be someone missing from that dinner table. It's someone missing from my dinner table, so I totally understand. I also think, just thinking on the, on the inside, the left, I think one of our challenges is moving from a sort of clubhouse feel about you know, I don't rock with her because she doesn't totally agree with me on this exact line or the other thing. And really getting serious about if we are serious about having power, taking power. Welcome to this week's early December edition of the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, our selection of some of the best moments from the last seven days within the Labour Radio Podcast Network. We'll start with the State of the Unions podcast. Now this week, AFL-CIO President Liz Shuru is asking the questions in conversation with Lafonza Butler, the past president of SEIU Local 2015 in California, the new president of Emily's List. Shuru and Butler discussed the importance of recruiting working-class candidates and union members to run for political office. On Your Rights at Work, Chris met with David Storey, who you might be familiar with as one of the founders of the Valley Labour Report. The subject of the conversation was David's provocative new article titled I'm a Defence Industry Worker, It's Time to Cut the Pentagon Budget. On Labour Radio Express, Jeremy Becerra met with Jorge Mujica from Arise Chicago and learned about a series of recent wins for workers at the El Milagro tortilla factory. You're not going to want to miss that. Then we catch up with the latest goings-on at Machinists Local 141 in the following two segments. First, in My Labour Radio, where President Mike Clem spoke with Mark Gavart about the importance of surveying members in advance of collective bargaining negotiations. And then, in the 141 report, Dave Lehive spoke with Regional Representative Belinda Hawkins about some of the challenges members are facing over the holiday season and what she's doing to help. And finally, I'm pleased to say that Black Work Talk is back for season two with a four-part mini-series on black labour. 
This is going to be followed by future mini-series on black feminism, the black left, and power building. In this segment, Stephen Pitts and guests put the challenges of 2022 in perspective. State of the Unions. I'm Tim Schlittner. We are really excited to have a very special episode of our podcast today with AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler, who is marking 100 days in office since her election on August 20th. She's in conversation today with the president of EMILY's List, LaFonza Butler, who is also new to her office and a dynamic woman leader. So we're very excited to have a conversation between these two leaders today. And with that, I'm going to kick it over to AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler. Thank you so much, Tim. And I want to thank you and Carolyn for the expert job that you do on the podcast each and every time. And I'm so thrilled to have LaFonza with us. LaFonza, I know you were in high demand as a newly elected president, and I am so grateful to you for joining us and just want to say welcome. Thanks so much. This is actually one of the first, if not the very first podcast that we have prioritized getting done. And it just matters so much to me that we do it with the men and women of labor. So I'm grateful to be able to be a part of it today. And I'm honored to be able to celebrate your first 100 days of leadership, Liz, that I know they're going to be hundreds more moments to mark as you take on the leadership of working men and women and families all across the country. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about your vision going forward. I'm a big believer and really learned as a part of my time as an organizer in order to really know where you're going, you got to know where you've been. And that story, I think, remains true, particularly at Emily's List, as I think about the future of building power for women and making sure that Emily's List endorsed women are advancing and being able to lead careers of political service or elected service, public service, when they put themselves up for consideration. And more than 35 years ago, about 36 years ago, Ellen Malcolm, the founder of Emily's List, gathered about 25 women in her basement. And they came together with the understanding that it was their voice and their money that could make a greater impact when they chose to do it together. And it's that sort of foundation of Emily's List and that the theory of doing something impactful together that I think was really intriguing for me as I thought about coming to Emily's List, but also now that I'm here as I think about how we plot a pathway forward. It's important for folks to know that Emily is not a person. It is an acronym and the acronym is early money is like yeast. The joke is it makes the dough rise. And so at Emily's List, what we do (laughs) is work to make sure that we are supporting women exactly the kind of women that you talked about. Women who come from different economic backgrounds, who don't have the ability for their families to write the check for their entire campaign. Women of color who may have historically not seen themselves as a part of Emily's List. In addition to togetherness with women voters and women in 
our communities as these candidates are moving forward, making sure that they're connected to organizations like their local affiliates in the labor movement, whether it's the firefighters or the police, the teachers or the nurses, making sure that they understand that these are organizations that represent their neighbors and inviting them to appreciate that there's a difference between the sort of media critique of unions and who they know to be the firefighter or nurse who lives next door to them and the issues that they have talked about trying to solve if they ever got a chance. And so what I want to do at Emily's List really is about building on that foundation, that spirit of togetherness, throwing the doors of Emily's List wide open so that every woman knows that Emily's List is an organization where she belongs. And then making sure that we're building the kinds of coalitions and partnerships that really help to prepare our women for their governing opportunities so that they understand the issues, they understand the different perspectives around the issues and actually are ready to hit the ground running after they're elected. And that is solidarity, right? That's another lesson from the labor movement that translates on over to Emily's list and vice versa. And the qualities that you look for in a good candidate, I think there's a natural effect with our union activists and leaders running for political office because the issues that they live day to day in the labor movement naturally translate into running for public office. So I think there's such great opportunity to continue building out our partnership and we want to see more union women running for office. I could Um, not have said it better myself. When we get a sheet metal worker elected, a woman sheet metal worker, a woman iron worker, a woman carpenter, a woman firefighter, a woman police officer, in addition to the home care workers and child care workers, public sector, public servants. I think when we're able to really show the vastness of the labor movement, the breadth of the types of workers that are represented in unions all across this country and moving them into political office, there surely is going to be a lot greater appreciation, I think, for the leadership that's built in unions, for the strategic skill sets that are built in unions, the compassion and empathy for our fellow man and woman that really emanates from being a part of a local union. I could not agree with you more. We can get more union members elected to office. It's definitely something I'm committed to doing in partnership with you and and your leaders across the country. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much, LaFonza. to your rights at work. I'm Chris Garlock here once again with labor lawyer Ed Smith. Hey, we have got a great show, but first, we are, of course, a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That's 150 uh, labor radio and podcast shows just like this, and you can check them all out, laborradionetwork.org. You are listening to your rights at work. Chris and Ed here to take your calls and talk about all things laborific. 
And we're very pleased to be joined by uh, a longtime uh, friend of mine and part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, David Story. He's president of the Machinist Union Local 44 in Decatur, Alabama, also co-founder of the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. David Story, welcome to your rights at work. Good afternoon. How are y'all? Oh, I tell you, we're better for having you with us, brother. Better for having you with us. Good to good to have you. So listen, uh, a, a friend of mine sent me your terrific piece in The Nation uh, last week. A great headline. I'm a defense industry worker. It's time to cut the Pentagon budget. Subhead, limitless military spending doesn't help workers like me. Green union jobs do. So first of all, t- tell folks a little bit about the work that you do there uh, down in Decatur. Uh, we build uh, rockets that launch the satellites for for NASA, for the uh, NRO, for various uh, defense-related uh, purposes, and for, uh, you know, the, the betterment of science as well. So, you know, a lot of your GPS, things like that that you use on a daily basis, we put those into orbit. Uh, the rover that's on Mars now that everybody kind of gets a kick out of every once in a while from the photos. That was, Mm -hmm. that was us. So, you know, we do a little, uh, about half and half, about half defense, about half uh, science and research. Love the Rover. I love the Rover. Yeah. Everybody loves it. (laughs) I want one. I want one. (laughs) So, so, so help me out. I mean, as my understanding is that, you know, people in the defense industries, you know, uh, always want more, 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 more. Right. But here you are saying, Maybe not. What's 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 your thought? Yeah, well, I mean, the basic premise is is shifting away from the defense industry spending and moving towards sustainable energy. And you know, we've got a lot of talk in Congress, mostly in the House, of course, about the Green New Deal and things like that. And that that catchphrase kind of covers up for a lot of what actually goes on. You know, our my my. Uh, region was a you know a direct uh, recipient of the T- T- Tennessee Valley Authority uh, back in the 30s. You know I, I grew up listening to my grandparents talk about how they didn't have power until the TVA come in because there was power here, but it was privatized power and it was mainly businesses and rich folks that got it. Well, we've kind of we've relied on that. We've got a co-op. I pay my electric bill through a cooperative that I'm a member of, we own the cooperative. So our rates is lower than just about everybody in the nation. It's, it's a win-win for, for everybody. And, and there's a constant question of where do we get this money from? Well, we've got a bloated Pentagon budget that, uh, you know, we're, we're supposedly pulling out of uh, the middle East. We're spending, I think president Biden asked for 765 billion of uh, taxpayer dollars this year for for defense and i'm just sitting here thinking for what and i don't think people i i've done the calculation before i came on with y'all and there's roughly 144 million taxpayers in the u.s just the defense spending alone that's five thousand three hundred dollars per taxpayer that will pay one way or the other, either through their payroll taxes, through increased costs somewhere else. They're going to pay that 
in defense spending. And I just think most people don't never put those large numbers, they, they, they don't correlate it with what it's costing them and what we're benefiting from it. Because in my opinion, we're not benefiting anything from spending the past 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan compared to what we could be benefiting by moving away from carbon-based uh, products and towards sustainability in the, in the electrical you know, field. Workers need to be leading the way. You know, for, for, I'm 50 years old and for my entire history, I've never seen workers leading the way on moving an industry out of one and into the other. And, and a lot of it's because of apathy, a lot of it's because of afraid of being, uh, being able to do something that they never done. But if, if we use the workers to lead the way and the workers have the voice, then there's not going to be a bunch of politicians trying to figure out how to shift money out of this into their buddy's pocket somewhere else. It's going to be <laughs> ensuring that we get a fair share of, of that, of that profits and, and also that that industry is created and not just demolish one and then shift it over into somebody else's pockets. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much to our engineers, Mike Nasella and Talia. Take care, everybody. See you next week. Listen to WLPN 1055 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, November 21st, 2021 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's program, we have a return of an old friend of Labor Express, Jorge Mujica, legendary Chicago immigrants' rights activist and organizer with the Rise Chicago Workers' Center. I talked to him last week by phone about the recent victories of the workers for the El Milagro tortilla factories in Chicago. I also took the opportunity to get Jorge's thoughts on the dwindling hopes for significant immigration reform under the Biden administration. Let's you know start off with maybe just the whole... Uh, background and beginnings of this situation. You know, it's funny when I when I uh, first started seeing the news about uh, workers organizing at El Milagro uh, a Tortilla, a tor- tortilla factory. I was thinking of back in the seventies when you know Rudy Lozano got his kind of first start as an organizer organizing Del Rey Tortilla, right? So it's in some ways this is a, an old struggle, but I I guess. And and it, and I guess you, you, uh, just like the name says, El Milagro, you have a miracle because you have some some breakthroughs finally. Um, I, my understanding is this particular organizing with El Milagro uh, started with uh, COVID stuff in 2020. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, they they uh, well, we have had workers of El Milagro like forever coming to our rise uh, all the time with individual problems workers' compensation cases, and so on and on. But last year, precisely at the beginning of the pandemic, pretty much, because it was April of 2020, 
uh, workers came back to our, to arise, but in groups, like saying, "Hey, you know, this is pretty bad. The conditions, uh, so many people infected, so many people sick, and we already have some people uh, who have died. So what do we do?" And we started organizing with them. Uh, I have to say, this is a little bit complicated because El Milagro's got like six different plants, and uh, the the workers who contacted us were from Thirty uh, First Street. Uh, so they say, you know, conditions are incredibly bad. What do we do? So we coach them to declare a health strike, uh, which is what we were doing last year. Uh, you know, wherever we're uh, sick workers, well, get out of the place, declare that you are on a strike for your health, go get tested, quarantine, and, you know, all the nine yards. Uh, but in this case, El Milagro reacted before the workers uh, could really organize and declare a strike. They shut it down, they shut the plant down, and uh, they took like three weeks to, to come back to work, etc. And things sort of settled down. Now, this year, the workers contacted us, but from another plant on 36th Street, saying, hey, know that El Milagro is uh, offering jobs for $16 an hour, and we are being paid $15.15. What can we do? So we helped them to write a letter to management uh, on the 36th Street plant they uh 94 people i think signed the letter they delivered it to management and management surprisingly came back with wage increases uh some of them got 80 cents some of them 150 some of them two dollars and one person even got three dollars and 20 cents wage increase uh because the increases were reflecting seniority which is what the workers were demanding I think it's important, too, to kind of point out uh, the whole process of what went on to get these victories. It's not like the, you know, El Milagro just, you know, immediately said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll agree. Like there was a walkout, I know, that happened um, back, I think it was September or so. And then that was followed by a lockout, right? The company locked out the workers for a period of time. Yeah, that was some really crazy situation. You know, the, the workers expressed very clearly in a letter, we are walking out because we are attending a collective event in front of El Milagro General Offices, and we will come back to work as soon as our event is over. But when they went back, the, the whole company was shut down. Uh, you know, just a, a, a sign on the door saying the company is closed for the day, report tomorrow with human resources, and that was it. And, and workers had their you know, personal belongings inside. Uh, they couldn't get their, their cars because the whole thing was shut down. Uh, so we had to call the police, the police department, to force El Milagro to the office, the, the, the plant, and then the workers could get, you know, their uh, car keys and their purses and whatnot. It, it, it was a really bad decision by El Milagro. But what we got is that, that we had two, two days in a row of actions because the next day everybody had to report to human resources. So we went with the workers and we ended up in El Milagro paying for the hours the workers had not worked. The, the lockdown hours 
were paid for by El Milax. So, you know, complete success on the side of the workers. That's really impressive. You guys have really, of course, over the years gotten better at better, I think, at these direct actions and so on, too. And it's it's really amazing how that's paying off in this case. Absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, you learn as you go. So we are learning and, and companies, uh, companies know arise now. You know, they, I, I, I often see uh, how many searches they did in LinkedIn and all these uh, places, you know, when, when we send them a letter, uh, they immediately respond. We have a strike going on right now in um, St. Charles, and the company responded to the demand letter in like six hours. You know, it's like, oh, gosh, a rise is involved. We better do something right away. Wow, that's impressive. That's really amazing. Thank you to Jorge Mujica of Arise Chicago Worker Center, as always, for his great insights on his organizing work and immigrant workers in particular. Everybody always asks for more money and improve the benefits, but it's the work rules that I really want to hear about because obviously I'm not on the shop floor and I love uh, when people write in there and saying, you know, this is this giving me the reason why they submitted that particular survey. And now here's your next episode of My Labor Radio. All right. How you doing, everybody? This is Mark, your host on My Labor Radio. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Today, we'll talk to IAM International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, IAM 141, President, Directing General Chair, Mike Clem. He was appointed in 2015 and elected in 2018 to that position. I'm going to go through a number of things dealing with your hierarchy, the structure of the things you do, and the people you represent. Because I know right now one of the big things you're doing is a survey among your members because you're going into contract negotiations in the next year. Talk about the importance of that survey and the folks coming back and giving you information. So it's actually crucial to the success of of the negotiation process. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are under the false premise that Mike Clem or the or the union negotiates whatever they want, but that's that's not the case. And what we do is we canvass the membership. We have seven different contracts on United, so yeah. we got to break it down by contract. And then the more participation we can get, the better it will serve us in providing proposals to the company that we need for our members' benefits and what right. they want. Now, everybody always asks for more money and improve the benefits and all this kind of stuff like that. But it's the work rules that I really want to hear about because obviously I'm not on the shop floor. Oh, yeah. And, uh, my negotiating team, although they're closer to the shop floor than I am, I just really kind of want to hear. And I love uh, when people write in there and saying, you know, this is this giving me the reason why they submitted that particular survey. Yeah, that gives you good context and background to it because you can't be everywhere. You had your upbringing, for lack of a better term, when you started uh, at JFK at United in 92. So you have your frame of reference, but that's not always everyone else's. And that's where you need that input. Absolutely. And the more participation we can get, the better uh, idea we have of what the what the membership is looking for. So it's crucial to say the least. So going forward, you look ahead, your negotiating team, how is that derived? Where do you find those folks? And are you getting them from the north, south, east and west? And you've got Guam and Hawaii and everywhere here. So we do get them from all over the country. We usually tap into people that serve on the committee, you know, the Mm -hmm. local grievance committee from that particular, that's the leadership from that particular location. I mean, listen, you're always going to, you can't have a, you know, 
50 person negotiating right. committee. So right. you just try to get as much uh, from around the country. So we have people from San Francisco, LA, Chicago, mm-hmm. Houston, Newark, Dulles. Yeah. So yeah. we got them from all over the country right now. That's great. Now I was looking at some of the safety stuff you guys do too, because it's a new subject altogether, but I think the safety of the members is so important because we all know about our workers Memorial day, April 28th of every year. Um, we've lost members and we, that's the, one of the things is a tragedy that we can control. We want to make sure that everybody that goes to work, goes home safely. Talk about your safety representatives and some of the work that they're doing in their individual areas to talk to folks in their stations and getting them that information on safety. You're absolutely right, Mark. It is a crucial part. Uh, the most important thing is that our members go home the same way they came mm-hmm. to work, uh, same mm-hmm. way they punched in the clock. We want them to punch out the clock the same way. I got three fantastic safety directors all throughout the system. We now inject this whole wearing a mask and people are angry about it, whether <laughs> they're angry in the terminal, or they're angry in the air. It's unprecedented stuff that's going on in the treatment of the members. So talk about some of those violence things that are a lot of folks are facing right now. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's really for our customer service group. You know, we, we the mm-hmm. IM doesn't represent, well, let me rephrase that. District yeah. Lodge 141 doesn't uh, represent flight yeah. attendants or pilots, but uh, what our customer service group, they are dealing mm-hmm. with hostility all the time. Uh, yeah. It's an unfortunate situation. It's not something that we union members are, are uh, have put in place. It's not even something that the company has put in place. It's a federal requirement in the airport, right. on the airplanes, and people just, for whatever reason, they get frustrated with this, and instead of you know, channeling that anger hmm. the correct way, they take it out on people that are working at the airports or on the airplanes. And that's not their fault. They're just trying to, uh, this is the rule. Sorry. This is the rules. The this is right. what they're getting paid for to, for everybody's safety. Nobody, nobody right. likes wearing a mask for the most part. Right. Right. And hopefully in January, the federal mandate will get lifted and people that want to wear them can and people that don't want to wear them, they don't mm-hmm. have to. Hopefully, you know, we've all turned around our lives to accept what TSA makes us go through to get into, you know, so it's important. This is just another safety feature. It's for your safety. Mike, it's been fantastic. I do appreciate you giving me your time and talking to the folks. We'll spread this around. Mark, I can't thank you enough for affording me the opportunity to sit here and talk to you. So thank you, sir. Thanks for everything you do for the Uh, Absolutely. I'm just one of those guys. was various things that a lot of people deal with more so this year because we're not we're a little bit normal but we're not totally but this year brings about people are getting back a little bit with their families not being stressed out but of course it might be someone missing from that dinner table it's someone missing from my dinner table so i totally understand Welcome, brothers and sisters of the Machinist Union and our allies in the labor movement. This is your weekly 141 report. And I'm your host, Dave Lehive, a communications representative for District Lodge 141. Our conversation this week brings 141 viewers to Houston, Texas, as we talk to the District 141 Employee Assistance Program for United Airlines, South Central Regional, Melinda Hawkins. With the holiday season now upon us, we all know it can be very stressful for everyone. Join us as we discuss this and other issues. All of this and more as our 141 report starts now.
Hi, Sister Belinda. Welcome, and thank you for taking the time to come on the 141 Report today. Hi, Dave. How are you? It's very good to see you, dear. How important are the 141 volunteer peer coordinators? Could you talk about what they do? Oh, they are very important to me. If I'm traveling and I'm not in the station, the peers are there for people to call. We do have a list of uh, or chart of all of the peers in every area that I cover. And all of the peers are there and they know that when they get a phone call, <clears throat> excuse me, Dave, when they get a phone call, they are ready to answer, to listen, and to help any member that call that have any type of problem. So they can handle it. And they've also been trained. They've been in on the Zoom classes as well. And we know that a lot of our members deal with a lot of stress around the holidays and stuff. Uh, what do you want to talk about when it pertains to that type of issue that members might be having during the holidays? Some of the issues that we've been coming across, some of the yeah. phone depression, because they've lost a loved one, or just depression due to the last two years that we've been dealing with COVID, that has brought a lot of anxiety to all of us and a lot of fear. So lately, a lot of the phone calls, and I've been speaking with uh, the peers as well in every station, be about depression, a lot of grief how they're going to miss their loved one during the holidays. I just received a call maybe a couple of hours ago, anniversary of someone's mother actually on tomorrow. And that person was having a very difficult time and uh, with anxiety and just knowing that her mother is not going to be around. So it's various things that a lot of people deal with more so this year because we're not, we're a little bit normal, but we're not totally. But this year brings about people are getting back a little bit with their families, not being stressed out. But of course, it might be someone missing from that dinner table. It's someone missing from my dinner table. So I totally understand. One of the things I don't think we really touched on when you talked about depression, some of our members may find that alcohol might be a way for them to get through and that really could lead them into even more trouble so we have ways of helping them out if they're having substance abuse correct oh absolutely i have uh, many people in treatment right now dave that during COVID, when people were staying at home they was isolated and alcohol did become a thing that a lot of people did besides other opioids and drugs uh, and even medication that the doctor prescribed you. So that's been on the rise and mental health is definitely on the rise, which is extremely sad, but I think it all stems from people being isolated and not being able to be around each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we okay. do have uh, counselors and uh, as I tell everyone that place a call to me now, I'm not a counselor psychiatrists or psychologists, my expertise is to listen to you and to give you some guidance and get you to get you to the right place where we can get you help. Listening skill, being EAP, is extremely important. Yeah. Helping our members get to the treatment centers that they need. That's what we do. We do yeah, that. If they need that help, we can get them there. So, Absolutely. And when great. a person reach out, Dave, that takes a lot of courage, and I know that. All of the peers know that, and 
So it's important to us to get right on it, to follow up with it and to stay with them while they walk through this journey of recovery. Yeah, that's great. That's great. This wraps up this week's 141 report. I want to thank you, sister, for this really informative report and hearing about all the good work being done by you and fellow EA, EAP representatives. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much. I, it was an honor to be on your report. I do follow your reports all the time. I love them. Thanks for tuning in each week. Have a good weekend. Bye for now. On the inside, the left, I think one of our challenges is moving from a sort of clubhouse feel that we can sort of get locked in about, you know, I don't rock with her because she doesn't totally agree with me on this exact line or the other thing, and really getting serious about if we are serious about having power, taking power. <laughs> Hi, this is Stephen Pitts, the host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Well, those 2021 off-year elections went good. While there were a couple of bright lights shining at the local level, overall the results weren't good. As the GOP, the GOP animated by the big lie, won key contests or sharply reduced expected Democratic majorities. And the results indicated the limits of an electoral mobilization strategy focused on Donald Trump. The gubernatorial candidates in Virginia and New Jersey threw red meat to their base, but did it without Trumpian crudeness. As a consequence, many Biden voters in white suburbia resumed their Republican voting habits, and their GOP continued to eat into Democratic voting majorities among non-white voters. What we need is power building a power building that, that understands the need to balance election year and mobilization with deep, sustained organizing. A power building that identifies a specific base, uses current organizations to mesh with that base, forges new ones rooted firmly in that base, and delicately balances the need to provide concrete services with the need to raise the collective vision of what is possible to achieve. Season two of Black Work Talk focuses on that type of power building. Prior to the off elections, the four co-hosts of season two gathered online to discuss various aspects of the new season. Here is the portion of that conversation, which focused on the challenges facing the left in 2022. After I pose the initial question, you will hear from Bill Fletcher, Lauren Jacobs, Cherie Davis, and Toussaint Lossier. Now, one thing I wonder about really kind of drives me a lot is um, the future. You know, we're right now kind of November, October, so 2021, 22 is almost a, upon us. I want to get your thoughts. What do you see as being the biggest challenges for power building facing the, the left in 2022 next year? What are your thoughts on that? The immediate problem is defeating the, uh, the right-wing populist movement. And um, and so the good news is that these revelations that are coming out 
about the obstructions the, right after the election, the attempt by Trump's people to overturn the election. And now, according to Rolling Stone, that there was an active conspiracy engaging members of Congress. This is great, right? This is exactly the kind of news we've all known it's been there. Now it's coming out. It's like moving the rock away and seeing the worms squirming around, right? Uh, and so this is going to be critically important. The other thing is uh, there's an immense amount of pressure that needs to be put on the Biden administration, but we're also going to have to tackle people like um, Senator, I love to call him Senator Munchkin, right, from Wisconsin, from West Virginia, and 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 cinema. Uh, I mean, we're going to have to basically uh, really put an immense amount of pressure on these folks. And see, this is why that notion, elections matter, elections have consequences, that we on the left often don't get that. And we're always ready to walk away when things don't work out quite the way we wanted to. And, and, and there's consequences. Other thoughts? I agree with, I, I agree. I also think, just thinking on the, on the inside, the left, I think one of our challenges is moving from a sort of clubhouse feel that we can sort of get locked in about, you know, I don't rock with her because she doesn't totally agree with me on this exact line or the other thing, and really getting serious about if we are serious about having power, taking power, we're going to have to work together and and ride together in ways that are going to strain tensions, but we got to figure it out and do it. So we can't be sort of splitting apart and doing our thing that we like to do where it's like this person took a position on one bill or one sort of minute thing that I didn't totally agree with. And so they're dead to me. We got to be able to ride through having principal disagreements with each other and still be able to move to move forward um, and confronting power on all of its faces. I'll say one of the things that comes to mind for me, and it's, it's very similar um, or kind of fits within what Bill and Lauren have already said is that we also have a challenge. There's a lot of new people who got involved with elections. Um, but we also, I don't know that we've done enough of the kind of political education to be able to, you know, bring folks fully in, organizing, you know, to get to the finish line kind of thing. And I'm also a little bit concerned about, uh, you know, the splintering that's happening around vaccination. You know, are you vaccinated? Are you not? What what is your take on that? Um, The fact that some people haven't been engaged again since we had the last election. And so the question is, you know, in some places they're continuing to have conversations and have been. In other places, I think there's a little bit of attrition. So I, you know, I think for me, it's, it's still the issue of how you engage people, um, you know, how you meet people where they are, but also don't run to the finish line and kind of leave your folks, like leave your folks on the sideline. And so, uh, I, I think those are some of the challenges that I'm trying to kind of think through as well. Yeah. Just to build on that. I mean, I think 2022 is, um, obviously going to be an important year because of the, the midterm elections, um, and that's going to occupy a lot of um, our time, attention, um, our organizing, our outreach efforts, um, but just trying to think through kind of what we're um, 
looking to do in the in kind of in the moment where we have an opportunity to um, potentially uh, have some impact in terms of thwarting the kind of right wing right wing backlash that we're seeing, um, have maybe some opportunity to translate and make meaning out of that backlash in a way where folks are clear about how much of that is not simply a response to having a Democrat in office or, um, uh, or you know, particular policies around vaccinations or what have you, but also a lot of that is in response to even sort of perceived, maybe not even actual advances that are supposed to be in the interest of black folks and just mm -hmm. navigating that, uh, that dynamic and making that legible and clear to folks in a moment where many are likely to still feel very frustrated and disillusioned with um, the the kind of, um, you know, tepid outcomes, um, uh, um, actual legislative or policy changes coming out of the, the Biden administration. That was Bill Fletcher, co-host of the Black Labor Miniseries. Lauren Jacobs, co-host of the Power Building Miniseries. Cherie Davis, co-host of the Black Feminism Miniseries. And Toussaint Lossier, co-host of the Black Left Miniseries. As you can tell by the richness of that conversation, we'll have a phenomenal season. Remember, episode one of season two drops on Wednesday, November 17th, as Bill and I begin the Black Labor Miniseries. Until then, stay safe and be well. That's all we've got time for today, but you've been listening to State of the Unions, Your Rights at Work, Labour Radio Express, My Labour Radio, The 141 Report, and Black Work Talk. If you enjoyed any of these shows, you can find the entire episodes at labourradionetwork.org and many other shows. You can also find them by using the hashtag LabourRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Labour Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by myself, Patrick Dixon and Chris Garlock. I also produced the show this week and Harold Phillips has ever worked on our social media. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labour Radio Net. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labour Radio Net. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labour Radio Net. For Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Patrick Dixon. Hope to see you next week. Thank you.